Here we are in episode 105 of the self-hosted podcast, and it is feeling officially like the end of summer. Uh, my two youngest have gone back to school. It's the first day of school today. You only say that because you live in the frozen north. It was 97 degrees down in Raleigh today. <laughs> okay. Yeah, actually, you know, it's funny. Last night on a whim, I pulled up Raleigh because I have like, I have like everywhere the hosts are at stored in carrot. And so I was on carrot weather. I'm like, oh, let's check in on everybody. <laughs> yeah. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa Alex. Yeah. yeah, it's 68 degrees and blue skies here. I'll take it, but it makes me a little sad when when summer comes to an end because I always picture summer as like I'm going to get all these projects done. <laughs> yeah, do you think that stems from summers at school as a kid feeling like they stretch in front of you forever? Except as an adult, life is yeah. in the way. You get that, and also for me, it's like, well, I'm going to have more daylight. So if the sun's going to be up till eight or nine o'clock. I should be able to get like twice as much stuff done. That should happen, right? So, all right, I'll plan. Like my big thing, and I got close, was I, I really started for a moment with Brent's help to wrap my head around all the different ways I could improve the RV and the studio with ESP devices, modules and just little things that I could get like the sonar module or relay you know, controls and temperature sensors and moisture sensors and all these little things I wanted to do for uh, LEDs where I wanted to add a few more LEDs controlled by an ESP. And I got a lot of the kits together. I got various parts. I got some LED light ropes. I got some relays and then just sort of lost momentum on all of it. And I thought by the end of summer, I'd have, I'd have like these lights installed and I'd have some stuff implemented. Nope. I didn't get to it. Not at all. So I feel a little bad about that. I think the trouble with some of those, sort of more uh, DIY projects, like the ESP-based stuff, is a lot of the times you don't know every single little piece of the jigsaw that you need until you start getting into the project. And then inevitably you do the calculus of, well, it's $15 on Amazon for this thing, or it's $4 on AliExpress for the exact same thing. Do I just wait three months for it to arrive on the slow boat, or do I pay the Amazon tax. And that can be the biggest impediment for me to finishing some of these more bitty projects, some of the ESP stuff. So I took the route, I recently ordered something called an ESP clicker. In my bonus room above my drum set, I have a, a skylight with a, a, an automated Velux blind motorized solar power blind in it. And it has a remote control, an RF remote control. I think I've mentioned it on the show before, which is paired with that blind. And I, I don't really want to go about hacking the RF protocol because the Velux blinds have some kind of encryption key rotation nonsense in them, which means not random strangers can't control right. my blinds, which is... Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Nice, but also, do we care? But okay, fine. Not for that particular skylight, probably not. And it, yeah, I, this is interesting because this is probably something that everybody has in their home is some device like this that has a remote or whatnot. Exactly. I'm listening. This is, you're, you're right up my alley right now. So this guy, I can't tell quite where his accent's from. It sounds Eastern European, sort of Russian-ish. I'm not entirely sure where this chap's from. But he runs a website at Priceless Toolkit, which is an IoT shop. And he sells pre-assembled circuit boards for all sorts of ESP-related nonsense. And this ESP clicker has three microscopic relays on it, which can simulate up to three different button presses on different physical devices. So the use case he shows in the linked YouTube video on the product page, which there'll be a link to in the show notes, by the way, 
uh, is that he has automated his coffee maker, which is not Wi-Fi enabled. The only way of interfacing with this physical device is to stand in front of it with your meat sausage and just push the button on the front of the machine. Well, except, of course, all that's doing in reality is bridging a contact. So all the relay's doing inside the ESP clicker is the same thing. And obviously, because it integrates with ESP Home, Home Assistant integration is a mere click away. And so I imagine you kind of have to pick and choose the device you're wiring to. Like, you'd have to be willing to open it up and wire some contacts on that side. Yes, absolutely. If you're not into soldering or into hacking potentially very expensive devices to pieces to integrate this thing inside of, stay away. But uh, for me, with my Velux remote, it has some surface mount buttons on it. It's got four, each button has four legs on it. So I get my uh, multimeter out and I turn it into continuity mode. And, you know, the, the pins of my multimeter are tiny. The, the, the probes, the tips of the probes are tiny. But the pads on these surface mount component buttons are even tinier. I can't even really think of an actual item that we would hold in our hands that is that small. They are maybe the head of a sewing needle small. Like I'm used to soldering small stuff with racing drones, but this is like another level down. So I'm going to have fun soldering it. But I did manage to get it work simply by just hot gluing. (laughs) I hot glued just what I was messing about. I hot glued the cable from the ESP clicker onto the button so I wouldn't have to physically hold it and control my uh, the blinds above my drums from from home assistant so it was it was pretty sweet that is nice i'm going to pick one of these up i have a fan i would love to control love 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 to be able to remote control it with home assistant cuz it's built into the roof it's a great exhaust fan but you don't need it running all the time if it gets down below a certain temperature i could just kill it with something like this i could just have an automation that turns it off What's particularly nice about buying this from Priceless Toolkit, we have no affiliation with this chap, or I just found a cool project on YouTube, is it's a pre-built project. So he shows you how to assemble it with all the surface mount components on the ESP board, all the relays and stuff. But honestly, this board is tiny. It's it's, it's probably about the size of your index finger um, when it arrives. It's it's too small for me to be messing around with. Like I'm I'm good at soldering small stuff, but this is just... It's it's too much. But the fact that you and I can just go on a website and buy a pre-made thing as a product that arrives with ESP Home already flashed on it, man, that is compelling. You wish, I know it's never going to happen, Alex, but don't you just wish these vendors would start maybe selling this as an option, you know, like an upgrade option. Hey, buy it with an ESP Home wired in and you can do what you want with it. I would pay more for that. Well, I suppose effectively that's what the whole two-year thing in a roundabout kind of way is doing, because that's just using an ESP chip inside a light bulb or whatever it might be. And there was a DigiBlur video just this week, which I'll put a link to uh, in the show notes as well, where he's talking about an update to the um, Liberation script we've talked about on the show before, where you act as the man in the middle between the local two-year device and their update server and flash ESP home onto it that way. There have been some more updates to that uh, recently as well. So go ahead and check that out down below. I've been, I've been very, very tempted to look at ESP solutions around buttons for home automation. There's a lot of options. You know, Hue makes something. Of course, there's tons of Zigbee buttons. There's tons of Z-Wave options. So I've been trying to figure out, is that the route I want to go if I want to start putting in more and more buttons to like turn on and off water pumps and water heaters? Or do I want to use something pre-made? 
that's maybe just on Zigbee or Z-Wave. And I already own some of these. So I've been experimenting down that route this week. And I'm curious, Alex, have you ever seen anything around using an ESP home to just essentially have like a button pad that you could press just to, and then just tie automations and home assistant to when you press a button? Not an ESP home uh, device, but you could certainly create a macro pad, like a, like a numpad a keyboard and put some kind of a microcontroller on that and then use the matrix layout of those keys to do different things. And people build all sorts of um, stuff to go on, like their smart desk setups. Obviously, the downside of those is typically they re require power all the time, where an ESP device, depending on how clever you are, can potentially be battery-based. But the advantage of using one of these sort of keypad-style things is it's almost infinitely configurable, especially if you start delving into the world of layers and all that kind of other stuff too. So this is this is the problem. So the wife, she tells me, you know, I've been getting up early, been doing the things, doing my things, getting my coffees, doing a meditation, and I don't feel like using the tablet in the morning. Okay, all right. And then I noticed that the kids haven't been using the tablet like in the evening. Like they just kind of, it's sort of slowed down. And so I kind of felt like maybe I'd built a system that the family wasn't really using. And it kind of cut them out, and I felt bad about that. And I thought, well, okay, I haven't really used buttons because we mostly use voice control and these tablets that are mounted. But maybe, maybe a button to control this specific light or to kick off this particular automation or to control this group, maybe it's time for that. So I, I, I decided to start doing some digging in this area, and I'm just not very impressed so far. Zigbee buttons, in my experience, kind of suck. They, they work most of the time but they fail just often enough for you to be like did it work has it worked oh yeah there it goes yep that is it they sleep right to save battery yeah and some buttons do support being plugged in but then those buttons have limitations and then the tooling in home assistant is pretty rough you can add a device easy enough using zigbee or z-wave or whatever you're using wi-fi if it's a shelly potentially but then like how do you do anything with that button well, you have to go create an automation. Okay, well, now you have to figure out what button the device thinks you're pressing when you press that. Find the right option in the automation, which sometimes has like 25 entries in there, even though, even though it's only got one or two buttons. And then you have to create an automation for everything you want each iteration of those buttons to do. So if you've got like a quad button panel, you have to create an automation for each button. And then, of course, all of these things support, like if you double tap, it does something different. If you hold it, it does something different. Well, that's a different automation. For that and so if you got a few a fair amount of lights or things that you want to be able to control over buttons like i want to have a button the wife can hit and it just raises the temperature five degrees just five degrees warmer for two hours and there's just not a really great solution in home assistant for this i have wanted that kind of uh for me it would be cool the house you know i'm, I'm feeling hot right now and i will know i will forget to turn the thermostat back up again can I just have a I'm playing the drums and I'm hot right now button? Yeah. Can, I, can, can that just be a thing? If sure. anybody knows how to do that kind of, I think it's probably a scene and then you return to the previous scene. If you were in the audience and you have a working example of that with code and the buttons, please write in and let us yeah. know. I started playing around with it and I haven't gotten it working yet, but I want to let the audience know because I think this should be built into Home Assistant. It's called Home Assistant Switch Manager. You can install it through hacks or do it however you like. And it gives you a UI to set up your buttons. And when you add a device, 
it gives you, okay, here's all the devices we know Home Assistant natively supports. So you select one from the list. It's also just, for God's sakes, nice to have at least some list of devices that you know work with Home Assistant. So that's another reason why this plugin is nice. So you go through the list of the buttons that work with Home Assistant. And then once you select it, it has this brilliant feature called auto detect. So you put it in auto detect mode and you press a button on the switch and it figures out what button and switch and everything is. And then you just start setting up graphically. This button does this. This button does that. If I press it twice and it's all a nice UI and it doesn't require creating automations. It is a custom integration. So you have to get that installed and then it has a front end component you have to use, but it's beautiful. It's very minimally designed. It looks like something the home assistant team might create. The only problem with it is, is I can't get it to work. I, it recognizes I press the buttons, but then it doesn't execute the thing it's supposed to do, like turn device on or off. So I've had to bail on using it. But it also supports MQTT for devices that use that, and it supports Z-Wave and Zigbee devices, it, Bluetooth, anything that Home Assistant can support, it'll work with. I just haven't got it to actually execute the functions. I imagine it's probably something wrong on my machine, so I'm back to using automations. But I wanted to let you guys know because this... This is so good. At ha it needs to be built in. They, they need to build this into Home Assistant. You know what Steve Jobs would say right now, don't you? What? You're holding it wrong. <laughs> oh, I thought he'd say something about don't have buttons or something. <laughs> I felt like I felt like I had like discovered like my my like a, a game. You know, when you're like, you're going to redo everything. You're going to delete all these automations. And you're going to redo the whole way you did manage all this stuff. I thought I was going to do that with switch manager, but I'm just not there yet. And so I'm just stacking more automations. Um, I do have a couple of switches that have worked for me so far. And, but like Alex said, with the big caveat that um, th all of this stuff will like go to sleep if it's battery powered. You know, the other thing that happens with those battery powered buttons, if, if you're as lazy as I am anyway, is you go to push the button one night and you think, ah, well, maybe it failed. I'll just get my phone out tonight. And then you push it again the next night and you're like, Ah, well, it failed. I'll, I'll fix it tomorrow. And then before you know it, your button's been out of battery for six months and, and your routine is completely devoid of physical <laughs> button presses. And this thing yeah. has been sat on the wall for six months doing nothing. So, uh, yeah. I, I just wish there was a way, an easier way for me to tap into the always-on power inside a light switch to power some of these buttons. Like, I know there's, uh, the, is it the Zoos switches I think we talked about? And they're Z-Wave. Yep. And they go in the wall and you can wire them. I really want just some kind of a, a non-offensive button pad, which looks like a light switch and behaves like a light switch for normal people. Uh, and for me in the middle of the night, to be perfectly honest with you, but also has the smarts that if I want to, you know, arm the front door lock and do a bunch of stuff as I'm heading to bed, you know, I don't have to pull my phone out every time. That would be really nice. If you know of anything like that, again, please, this is a crowdsourcing episode uh, in full today. But if you if you have any really good examples, like the Zoo switches, but Zigbee would be my preference. If you know any of anything like that, please write in and let us know. Linode.com slash SSH. That's where we host everything that we put in the cloud. Anything that the listeners are going to touch, anything that we want to have super fast computer infrastructure, it's Linode. And they've got some exciting news. So go to linode.com slash SSH, get that $100 in 60-day credit. You can really kick the tires, you can really try the infrastructure, and you can check out the great news. Linode's now part of Akamai. All the developer-friendly tools, like their cloud manager, which is beautifully built, their API, which is clean and well-documented, their command line client, which is super handy, all that stuff, like we use to deploy and scale in the cloud, 
That's still there. It's still Linode, but now they're combined with the power and global reach of Akamai, and they're expanding the services to offer more resources and tooling while maintaining that reliable, affordable, and scalable solutions that open source projects, individual listeners, and businesses of all sizes use. And we love it. We run our matrix infrastructure in there, and over the two years, we've scaled that thing into a monster to maintain performance for our community, and Linode handles it. The object storage is fantastic. I use it for all kinds of things now that are just sort of like back-end infrastructure bits and pieces. Resources for clients and whatnot for accessing an XML file, pulling down a JPEG, put it on object storage. Linode has fantastic object storage. And as part of Akamai's global network of offerings, they're expanding the data centers worldwide. They just opened up a brand new one last week in Sweden. It is a banger, and they're giving you access to even more resources. You can grow your business, your project, or your customers. So why wait? Go experience the power of Linode, now Akamai. Go to linode.com slash SSH. That's where you go to get the 100 bucks, support the show, and learn how Linode, now Akamai, can help you scale your applications from the cloud all the way to the very edge. You know, like Alaska. Probably. That's an edge. Or Brent's house. Go try it. Support the show and get that $100 to kick the tires. Linode.com slash SSH. Now, before we get to an interview with Antonio, who is the lead developer of the MergerFS project, uh, I came across a really interesting article on TechCrunch earlier. Matter. Not the matter you're probably thinking of. No, no, no. Not the home automation matter. The other matter. The app which lets you read stuff later and transcribes and reads it back to you matter have added podcast transcription support today this is getting more and more popular i've been hearing from listeners that already just transcribe our shows and so another tool you know in in that in that cap is nice i don't i don't think i'm familiar with matter i actually when you put this in the doc i thought you were talking about the the communications (laughs) protocol Well, I mean, the thing is, it's not self-hosted at all. And the reason I mention it today is not for our core listener base, of course. It's actually going to make me get off my ass and and look at how we can transcribe some of the JB show notes automatically using some of the whisper tooling that's getting really good these days. The tricky part, and again, if you know a way around this right in, let me know. (laughs) That's the theme this episode, isn't it? Um, if you have a good way of doing the diarization, so Alex said this sentence and then Chris said that sentence, I think typically Drew, our editor, does a, a pretty good job of making it so we don't step on each other, which isn't always the case with podcasts. So the diarization part should be fairly straightforward for the most part. Uh, if you have a good way of, of doing that with the open source whisper tooling that you, you're using, let us know. We'd love to build it into our release pipeline. One thing we could do to make that simpler, uh, it would require some help from Drew, but I've talked to him about this, is supplying host tracks. So there's a Chris track and an Alex track. And so you give that to the trends to Whisper and Whisper knows everything said on this track was from Chris. Everything said on this track was from Alex. Ooh, Yeah, of course we have that option as the uh, the creators of the content. Yeah, we, we got it and we have the source. We got it multi-track. So we, yeah, we do. That's, that's what's cool about being able to build it in at the at the production levels, we could potentially do that. Uh, yeah, I'm really, really excited about getting that rolled out because I've been experimenting, manually generating them, manually attaching them to the shows for some things every now and then, trying different formats. It's so close. Like, it still messes up on some of the tech terms. So, like, a, this doesn't seem totally feasible, but a dream of mine would be transcription gets published 
And then people could do pull requests against it and, and the community could maybe fix the transcription if they cared, because it's not something we're going to go back and clean up. You know, I could see us running a better transcription five years down the road and just overriding all of the transcription files with a better version. I could definitely see that at some point. Alex, you had a chance to sit down with the lead developer of MergerFS, and he joined us for a chat. So welcome back to the show, Antonio. The last time we spoke to you technically wasn't in self-hosted. It was in one of the Jupiter Extras shows where we interviewed you with Drew and Brent to talk about MergerFS. How are you? I'm well. How are you doing? Doing good, thank you. How is the uh, the new Texas sunshine treating you? It's uh, It's been hot. Uh, it, it rained once in two months for like 15 minutes. We kind of celebrated. So it's 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 been a little bit to acclimate from uh, New York City, but it's been good. Yeah, I tell you, uh, we were just talking about this before we, we pressed record. I think if I lived in Austin, I would probably have gained another 100 pounds since moving to America. It just Some of the barbecue down there is just next level. The food in general, right? The Mexican food, of course, the oh, Tex-Mex yeah, of course. And, and, like, and everything. I mean, they've got all these fusion. Uh, we, my wife and I, it was our ninth anniversary of dating. And we went to this place. It's like brisket, but with an Asian flair and uh, really good. Came home completely stuffed, like fell asleep on the couch afterwards. Uh, delicious. And the fact that I work from home and I'm in my office, you know, most days, five days a week at least. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm lucky that I haven't put on that 100 pounds you mentioned. That sounds amazing. Now, for those of you in the audience that don't know Antonio, I'll forgive you because it was 2019 the last time I think we spoke. Uh, Antonio is the guy behind MergerFS. I think one of the most underrated, dare I say, like low-key, awesome bits of Linux technology that's really changed the way in which I interact with hard drives in media servers in particular. Uh, So the idea behind it is you have just a bunch of drives. And then you point MergerFS at them with an FS tab mount entry or something. And then it kind of pulls those drives together into one big, what would you call it, like gluttonous mount point. And then you can kind of traverse all of the files and folders on those drives uh, as part of that JBOD as if it was just one single massive drive. With conditions but yes i mean if people are familiar with uh, dry pool on windows or union fs on uh, on linux or aufs there's a few different technologies over the years U- union file systems have been around for 30 years at least if you use docker or containers you might be familiar with overlay fs which is a different kind of union file system so yeah i'm in that category All right. So let me ask you this. It's been, uh, you know, two or three years since we spoke. 2019, I think, the last time. This is your opportunity to tell the good people of the self-hosted podcast what's changed. There's been a lot of random stuff. I mean, the core features are all all there. For the average user, I don't think much has changed, if anything, at least from their perspective. Under the covers, I've done a lot of cleanup. I years ago embedded libfuse into the project to make it easier for me to extend things. And I did a lot of kind of retrofitting of the code there. I reduced memory footprint quite a bit and introduced some techniques to just limit fragmentation of memory, which was an issue for some users. If you had a machine running for a long time, there's a lot of churn of, of objects, especially on SBCs, smaller RAM systems that would cause issues. So I've helped mitigate the amount of memory in general used and then kind of limited 
that uh, memory leak in the form of fragmentation. I've also added kind of, again, under the covers, threading pools to certain behaviors. This is one of these things as a software developer, you have an idea of who's going to use your software in a certain way, and then you release it on the world and people use and abuse it for all kinds of other purposes. And and I've had folks with like four socketed Xeon systems running it against local shares, running different file systems, connecting to remote file systems of all sorts. And in those situations, the uh, concurrency can be both good and bad. Good in that you've got more things happening in parallel, but because of how scheduling works, it can actually reduce the throughput. And so there's features for like pinning threads on the cores to separate receiving of messages from the kernel with actually processing them, allowing you to determine how many kind of readers you want, how many processors you want, and then different strategies for pinning the cores. And that helps increase throughput. I haven't released this yet, but soon I'm releasing a feature that's been asked for for a while. Reader, right? Like when you actually scan directories, a lot of people will have network file systems and the latency to connect to those is pretty high. Or they have maybe spinning disks where they're asleep. And so I'm concurrently connecting to or doing a reader on all of those at the same time, if optionally, because it increases the memory usage a bit. But that way it can reduce the the latency to actually get that data. And uh, so when you do an LS, it's it's faster. Yeah, I noticed Wendell did a video fairly recently on ZFS where he put his metadata onto a pair of NVMe drives. And even though the data was still stored on spinning drives underneath, the lookup times, the seek times for like just listing the contents of a specific directory was 10 or 20 times faster just simply by moving that metadata. Is, is that the kind of thing you're talking about here? Uh, no, though I I have been working on something similar. Ooh. MergerFS and a lot of union file systems at their core is almost like, it's just a union in the truest sense. Imagine you have A, B, and C, and you were to LS in each one of them individually. Under the covers, that's all MergerFS is doing. And so imagine you type LS and your drive has to spin up and it takes like 10 seconds. Well, if each one is asleep and it takes 10 seconds each, it's going to take 30 seconds at least in aggregate. Now, what this feature does is just issue each of those at the same time and then aggregates the data as soon as it's available. So you're looking at more like 11 seconds rather than 31 seconds. That sounds fantastic. And I guess, you know, uh, do you have any sense of what the typical MergerFS deployment size is? I mean, there's no telemetry or anything like that in your packages, are there? So it must be tricky. It's one of these things where the exceptions probably indicate the rule. And what I mean by that is the most questions I get about MergerFS are usually from total noobs who don't know anything about file systems, right? And so Unfortunately, there's only so much I can do to simplify what a file system is. That's mo- that's most of us, by the way, dude. You know that, right? Well, I, yeah, but I mean, people who have like zero Linux experience, they're coming straight from Windows. They really have no understanding of how file systems work, even from just a general purpose user perspective. And so I, I, I get a lot of questions from that. But then the other side is the people who have these, like I was saying earlier, these crazy setups of like multi-socket Xeon systems with a hundred threads or something. I think there's a probably a very large silent minority or majority there 
uh, of people who just are, you know, they've got five drives and uh, that that's kind of their setup. And maybe they want an SSD in there on occasion. Well, speaking of SSDs, I actually had a question for you around caching. This is something on Perfect Media Server that I actually get quite a bit as a question is, it's pretty common in the Unraid world because of how they do their parity calculations. You're basically halving your write speed of any disk because for every single write you make, it has to make another write to the parity drive as well. So it basically just cuts your write performance in half, which is why Unraid many years ago adopted that cache drive and then mover script type stuff. Now, I know there's some stuff in your readme about, is it Bcache, I think, and a bunch of other stuff. What's your take on caching? So there's there's lots of levels of caching, and this can be very confusing for folks. And and unfortunately, again, it's one of these things where the, the features are there for functionality purposes. If there was one great generic way to set it up, I would just make that the default. Unfortunately, I find that that's not the case, especially since a lot of people are using it in a way where if you did induce caching, People want to write things out of band, right? They want to be able to write to our clone independently and still have MergerFS work. And you can't have caching there because there's no way you'll eventually get into a bad state with that. So there's there's certain there's kind of caching in the kernel, and MergerFS has a number of, of features there that are related to Fuse directly. Then you have caching that Merger itself, MergerFS itself can do. I don't do too much of that, um, though I'm looking at doing some more of it just to reduce sort of the, the the amount of calls I have to make into the kernel. And then there is usually what they call like tiered caching for the underlying devices. And that is where you have like NVMe or Optane in front of spinning disk or Optane in front of SSD in front of spinning disk or, you know, that tier of, of setup. And, and th- this is something that I hope to fix in the next year uh, because MergerFS has kind of a simple key value pair config setup. It's difficult to articulate to the software something like a very thorough tiered uh, caching system. But there are ways to implement that regardless out of band. And that's the kind of things I generally show in my documentation, which is similar to those mover scripts that DrivePool has or Unraid has. What you can do is just create two pools and you can set one pool up as your primary pool. And that's where you put your SSDs, your fast storage, and your slow storage. And the idea is that you create a policy, you have a policy in, in, in MergerFS. Every kind of file system function has a policy. And that policy is what chooses how to behave when that function is called. So instance, for instance, you want to open a file, there's a policy that gets run and it chooses which file is going to be opened because you could imagine a scenario where you have five drives and you have four files across five drives. Like how do you pick one? What you do is you set up a creation policy such that your SSDs are prioritized, right? So MergerFS is kind of always picking your SSDs. Then you create like a secondary pool. And the reason you want the secondary pool is mostly because it's easier than duplicating the logic of moving stuff from drive to drive. But the idea is you just then target like with our sync that ssd and you just you know every day or whatever you just move those files over to the the secondary pool and that secondary pool has none of the ssds it only has your slow devices in it and then and then so far as something like plex or jellyfin is concerned the files haven't moved they're they're still in the same place most likely because of how you know the measure fs 
uh, union stuff works. There is some subtlety there, but yes. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a neat idea. And I think, you know, you could very easily combine that approach. I mean, that's how I've been adding ZFS into my, you know, single storage mount point for the last few years. It, it's a really interesting concept. And I think once you unlock that idea that you could have more than one merger FS mount point on a single system that's containing different tiers of storage, for want of a better phrase, different classes of storage, then you can ramp up the complexity quite quickly, but it also ramps up the flexibility massively. Well, yeah. And if you think about it, so that that idea to add SSDs in that form came after a very popular usage of MergerFS, which I didn't see it coming when I first created it, which is people will have a local cache of drives and then they have you know, their data hoarder, all their ISOs sitting on uh, Google Drive or something, and they tend to use Rclone. And the author of Rclone and I are on good terms. He has a union feature in Rclone that is uh, mimicking what MergerFS does. And so people will combine the two and basically use their hard drives as a cache to cloud storage. And so you just add in SSDs in front of all that, and you have, again, another tier There's another strategy that can be done that I don't see a lot of people doing. I created a tool years ago to orchestrate all this stuff, but I never made it popular or I never promoted it. And and I've been looking at maybe doing that again. So if you're familiar with uh, Device Mapper in Linux, DM Setup, which is used, it's the underpinning of technologies like LVM2, you can actually take a block device, any random block device, Uh, whether it's a hard drive or SSD, and you can make another device a block cache for it. There's DM cache, which a lot of people know. And so you can use LVM to create logical volumes and you can create a a cache partition. But what a lot of people don't realize is you can actually take a random hard drive you have already formatted with whatever file system you have and use an SSD to create a, a cache on top of that. It's not that it's some secret. It's just not well, it's not publicized, I think, because there's no infrastructure around it, no software to kind of automate that process to say like, okay, I want, you know, 100 gigs of this SSD to be cached for this drive and 100 for that and and to be able to easily bring it all together. And so I've been looking at, at maybe releasing a tool that can help with that as well. And so that way, people who want that caching at a block level, which can help with spin up of drives and, and other issues, can do that without having to move to ZFS or move to Bcache or BcacheFS. We'll, we'll see that where that goes. So what have you got coming down the pike for us? Any exciting stuff? You know, most of the changes uh, or additions that I've made in the past year or so have been quality of life things. So I added like ODirect support, which is kind of a niche feature that some programs use, but it took a little bit to get working. So I added that. I added the ability that if a drive goes into read-only mode, it will tag it as read-only. And so it, it'll find another drive, right? Like you try to create a file and it's a read-only device because your extension for partition got corrupted. It'll find a, uh, another drive that will work if one's available. Read-ahead, setting read-ahead has always been kind of a pain. So MergerFS will do that for you. Uh, the ability to do lazy unmounting of an existing mount point because Fuse doesn't have a good way to remount like traditional file systems do, MergerFS can take care of that for you. And so as soon as the last program stops using the old version of MergerFS, it'll just get unmounted. So there's been a lot of stuff like that. 
going forward, what I really want to do is completely redo the configuration system and move to Tomal for the config. And what that will enable me to do is add a lot of features that people have been asking for in terms of like built-in tiering knowledge. So people would really like MergerFS to know about the tiers of, you know, the performance, different performance characteristics of different drives. So it can more intelligently choose which file system to choose uh, when it's creating a file or reading a file or whatnot. And that's kind of a big lift. It might not sound like much, but because the configuration is very simplistic at the moment, it's and it touches a lot of pieces, right? Like there's a runtime config option and all these things. So that's going to take a little bit of work to do. But that that's going to enable me to add probably like a list of, instead of just having a list of, uh, of uh, branches, you can have like a list of list of branches, right? So you could have a collection of SSDs or a collection of NVMEs that get priority. And then that falls back if nothing fits there into the slower drives. And so that'll allow for that tiered caching that we talked about in a more fluid and, and more natural way. I also have been thinking of adding features kind of like what Unraid and Drypool do. I think the, the reason that they have mover scripts is because they want to have a very discreet, simple way of, of laying out the files, right? As you create files and, and whatnot. And then they worry about moving them on after the fact, kind of like the mover script that we talked about earlier. A lot of users are either because they've used those products, I think, or maybe it just seems the more natural way of doing it, would really like the behavior of like rebalancing, right? Like I add a new drive and I want it to kind of slowly move stuff around in some fashion. And MergerFS doesn't do that very explicitly. It, it chooses a position where it's going to create something, you know, on the fly as it's making a decision and you get to choose that policy. And so I think it'd be better to have both, right? Like you can choose up front, but then there's kind of a background task that'll just sit and move things around more subtly. So that that's a big one that I'm going to look at as well. I do wonder sometimes and just how much of this is Stockholm syndrome. A lot of Unraid users in particular, no disrespect to that project because, you know, it's been around forever and lots of people use it, lots of people like it, but it does do some stuff in a strange way and it, it has to do things in a certain way to make up for decisions made 15 years ago you know, booting from USB being a, a great example. So anyway, I wanted to say thank you very much for coming on today, Antonio. Really appreciate it. Where can we send folks if they want to support the project or open a feature or a bug request or something like that? So, I mean, if you just go to your favorite search engine and type MergerFS, it, it will show up. The main page is just the GitHub page. So it's github.com slash trap exit slash MergerFS. And if you're interested in supporting the project, instead of MergerFS, go to just support. So there's actually a repository that has all the support details there. Lovely. Yeah, all the GitHub sponsors, Open Collective, Patreon, all that kind of good stuff. Thanks so much for coming on and enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks for having me. Tailscale.com slash self-hosted. Head on over there right now to get Tailscale for free for up to 100 devices. It's a great way to support the show. And you can get the zero config VPN up and going in just a couple of minutes and have a mesh network between all your devices protected by WireGuard's noise protocol. And it's fast. It's really fast because all your machines talk directly to each other. And the TailScale client is smart enough to know if you're trying to send something to a machine that's just destined for your tailnet, you know, like something that has a tailnet IP, or if it's something for the internet. And that small little difference makes a big user impact because 
you can leave TailScale running all the time. Like I have it on my Pixel 7 24-7. Always connected. But only the resources I need on my TailNet go over my TailScale connection. So I put all of my infrastructure on my TailNet. All my devices, my NextCloud, anything I'm going to sync to, anything that I might, like my pictures backup, Home Assistant, I put it all on TailScale. So that traffic goes over TailScale. And then there's a lot of nice-to-haves, like TailScale SSH, which lets you log into any machine on your TailNet using your TailScale credentials and ACLs. And yeah, they got a dashboard to let you manage all that. There's things like TailScale Send, TailDrop, you know, kind of like AirDrop, right? But it's, it lets you send files between your TailScale machines. They have a plugin for VS Code, so you can edit the config files on any machine in your TailNet. They have lots of ways to extend it. Alex and I share one machine between each other, and you can even limit it to the ports that you can allow through there. They have a client for just about every architecture and OS, mobile, desktop, server, SBC. But TailScale also supports something called subnet routing. So like my solar equipment, I can access that, even though I can't put the TailScale client on my solar equipment. I have a machine on my network where I have subnet relay turned on. And so using that, I can get to those systems from my other TailScale clients. And I love that. So I always know how the house is doing, even the electrical equipment. Go try it out, support the show, and get it free for up to 100 devices when you go to tailscale.com slash self-hosted. Well, you've been asking, and I think we have an answer for you. It's always the llamas. Llama GPT, L-L-A-M-A GPT, a self-hosted offline chat GPT-like chat box powered by Llama 2. No data leaves your device. And they just added Code Llama, which is one of the later models that Facebook just put out. And they just added support for NVIDIA GPUs. It's created by the Umbral folks, and they've released this just as a general Docker image so you can put it on any system. Some of this stuff is getting crazy good. Just to go back to the transcription stuff for a second, there is a version of Whisper for Mac called Mac Whisper, which I've been using to transcribe all of my YouTube content recently. And I feel like having a local chat GPT like bot, you know, where I could maybe feed that, you know, that transcription of a clip I've just recorded and say, could you maybe make that snappier or just, you know, some of those little things that you use chat GPT for. It's always at the back of my mind when I log into OpenAI's website of where is this data going? So I love, I love, love, love that this is 100% private and local. And the UI is beautiful. They really picked like the best of the front-end software that's out there right now and combined it with the latest and freshest of the open-source large language models all on Docker, and they worked really hard to make it, although I wouldn't do it, but they made it, re- they made it possible to run it on a Raspberry Pi. I mean, it's horrible performance. Like, for example, if you're on an M1 Max MacBook, you're going to get a generation speed of 54 tokens a second. On a Raspberry Pi 4 with 8 gigs of RAM, you're going to get 0.9 tokens a second. Okay, so it's, it's, it's a big difference. Why is anybody still running a Raspberry Pi 4 at this stage? You know, maybe I, you're like me why. and you're an old man and you're like, I like it slow sometimes. I know that sounds weird, but it's nostalgic when the computer's slow. <laughs> I'm being facetious. Of course I am. Yeah, I, I understand. There's plenty of good reasons. It is really nice to have it all local, though. I agree with you, Alex. And to have Code Llama local, too, is choice. Llama, llama, duck. this speaks to a piece of work i've been doing with do you remember morgan the doorbell guy yeah he and i have been working on a quick sync benchmarking script over the weekend cool Uh, finally 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 been wanting to work on this for a long time i think i mentioned it in the show a few episodes ago as well 
but essentially, I uh, edited together some of my old drone footage into a two-minute clip of uh, the Ribblehead Viaduct in the UK from a few years ago. Uh, not the one that's used in Harry Potter. This one's up on Blee Moor in the Yorkshire Dales. Beautiful, beautiful structure. Anyway, I digress. Uh, the purpose of this script is to try and get a sense for where the sweet spot is with QuickSync. Uh, I had itchy feet the other day, and I thought, I wish I had a server with more PCIe lanes so I could put some more NVMe storage in this thing. But my trusty i5-8500 CPU and the motherboard combo I have in there, which is an ASRock rack motherboard, they don't really have much in the way of PCIe lanes. So I was thinking, well, could I go Ryzen? Is that a thing? What about an Arc GPU? Could I could I use that? But then isn't that going to like quadruple my energy usage? And I thought to myself, I don't know. I don't want to buy these things and find out later. So what I'd love to do, and it might be ready by the time we record the next episode, but keep an eye on the Discord server. There's an active thread over there on the Perfect Media Server channel called QSV Testing, Quick Sync Video Testing, where we're talking about the, the various different iterations of this script and how we can do benchmarking across all or as many of the different Quick Sync uh, encoding engines as we can. I've got access here to second, third, fourth, I think sixth maybe, and eighth gen Intel CPUs, uh, and a ninth actually. So if you have something else, or indeed you have one of those and you'd like to run the test as well, uh, join the Discord and let me know in that channel, and we'll share the GitHub repo with you where the script is. The idea is, is to try and figure out where the sweet spot is in terms of price to performance, in terms of codec support, all that kind of stuff. Why hasn't this been done already, Alex? Why hasn't this been done already? I don't know. I mean, I look at what LTT Labs are up to and, some, you know, Gamers Nexus, and, all that, and they're all focused on gaming. Like, that's that's fine. But the Terminal's my favorite video game. I don't need <laughs> a 3090, you know? The hardware so. can do other things besides play video games, you guys. <laughs> yeah, sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. That'll be really great to see the results. I'm very curious to see how that plays out. The quick sync, sweet spot. <laughs> that's going to be awesome. Yeah, well, when the benchmarks are all run and all the rest of it, I'll make a proper blog post, perfect media server page, podcast episode, YouTube video, the, the virtuous cycle of content will be strong yes. with this one because it's a lot of effort. So I am very tempted by the Arc GPU. I have one in a machine in front of me and it sings with Linux. Everything works so smooth. It's so snappy, full Wayland support. It's all just flawless. However, I constantly struggle with tools like Stable Diffusion or Llama GPT or even video encoders, they just don't even grok what the Intel Arc is. They just, nobody has really built support. And then you have to go find, as far as this is my understanding, like if you want to run something like, say, Llama GPT or Stable Diffusion using the Intel Arc, you basically got to go get patched version of the, of the project. Well, you could do what Wimpy does and run multiple GPUs in the same system and just have a headless NVIDIA card that has the CUDA driver available for those particular apps. Not a, I mean, not an awful solution if you've got the card already. Like, if you've got the hardware, I don't think I'd go out and blow the money on a high-end NVIDIA not to, not to use it for anything else. But if I already had one. Yeah, also, not only do you have to have the, the physical hardware, you've got to have the minerals to configure it, too. It's not a simple task. <laughs> 45homelab.com. Big, strong, fast storage servers with affordable, high-performance, high-capacity enterprise storage solutions for all industries for all data size requirements. I mean, we're talking professional-grade solutions that are ideal for a business, 
maybe your home lab too. So go check out 45drives.com to learn more about those folks. You might remember them from the show before, and they have been cooking up 45homelab.com. What if you took all the ideas and all of the skills learned and all of the workmanship that went into the enterprise-grade storage, but you made something just for the home lab? That's their mission. They want to change the storage market, and they think they have a vision for the future home lab product market. They've been listening to feedback from our audience because we had them back in self-hosted 98, and they're cooking up 45homelab.com. I think it's going to be up your alley, so go check that out. Again, it's 45homelab.com for the stuff they're working on for us home labbers. And I think 45 Drives maintains probably one of the best relationships with the open source community. They have open designs for their hardware. I really like their overall ethos and where they take this stuff. So I think you might like it too. So go learn how 45 Drives does things differently at 45drives.com. And if you get a chance, tell them the self-hosted show sent you if you end up buying something. And take a minute and go visit 45homelab.com. I know, it's two URLs tricky. One's the company, 45drives.com, and one is the project they're cooking up for us self-hosters, 45homelab.com. We got a doozy of an email into the show this week. I think it's Keone's how you pronounce it, and he lost his home lab in a fire. In fact, his whole town went up in a fire, and uh, he doesn't have a lot of budget to work with. He's got some networking limitations, but he's rebuilding. And he's picked up an older HP Pro Desk for 20 bucks, an i3 4th gen, 500 gigs of hard drive, and 4 gigabytes of RAM, which he can upgrade over time. And so now he's trying to wrap his head around how to kind of restore. And he says, what would be the best and easiest and probably the most transferable way to get my old systems up and running? I'm staying with family, so I don't currently want to mess up with any of their router settings or their firewall. I'm wondering if TailScale or WireGuard could help here. Well, first of all, congratulations on finding that HP ProDesk for $20. That's a bit of a steal, isn't it? Really? Yeah. Well I'm done. very much currently in love with those small and cheap one-liter PCs. You know, the the one-liter style that you can find refurbs on Dell's website or eBay for sort of $100-ish. Uh, more modern stuff might be better from a power draw perspective. So like the 8th gen draws 7 watts idle, whereas the 4th gen draws closer to 20. I don't know if that's a consideration for you, but... I seem to recall power on Hawaii isn't the cheapest thing in the world. The other thing to consider is that you could potentially just use uh, something t quite turnkey, like, dare I say, Tailscale, to connect into these remote devices without having to do a whole bunch of firewall punching and configuration and stuff. Naked WireGuard is, is great if you have access to the firewalls and you're familiar with you know distributing your own keys and stuff like that. But uh, I, I don't know what your appetite for that kind of thing is. Yeah, I think TailScale is probably the way to go on this one, too. And then you're not messing with anybody's network. If you move it, they'll reconnect to each other, reestablish. If you end up on a different network down the road, you're not going to have to rebuild your, your VPN setup at that point, which you'll probably become pretty familiar with. Uh, he continues to say, I'd like to have a NextCloud instance using an external USB 1 terabyte drive, Pi-hole for ad blocking, maybe for my devices only on TailScale, possible Samba or NAS drive for file sharing, and Plex or Jellyfin. I mean, that's kind of the self-hosted recommended setup there. Pi-hole's pretty great. Plex or Jellyfin, whichever one fits your use cases. I'd say start with Jellyfin. And then if you have issues, try Plex. Also, he says he's considering Proxmox. I think that's a good idea. He says, I'm okay messing with any type of install on a base Ubuntu server, Proxmox or Docker. Now, I don't know about it. What do you think, Alex? Proxmox on an i4 with four gigs of RAM. That might, that might be tight. I mean, you're going to run up against the limits of four gigs of RAM 
pretty quickly as soon as you spin up one virtual machine. But if you were to use Proxmox to manage a couple of LXC containers, then yeah, that yes. gives you a lot more runway, of course, uh, and Docker containers as well. Of course, Proxmox is just Debian Linux under the hood, so you can do that too. I get lots of people asking me how I run my perfect media server setup. I, I updated the FAQs today with the answer to the question of, should I run perfect media server on the host directly or as a VM? Because for some reason, that's a really important question to folks. I, I, I've never really quite understood no, I don't need to shit on people that way. The answer is, it's really up to you. If you want to run some services in a VM and have that level of isolation, that's great. You're going to have to do a couple of things like you know, pass through if you want to have disks available, that kind of stuff, or set up file sharing from the Proxmox host into the virtual machine using some, maybe some kind of internal bridging or something like that. VertFS or Vert9P, I think is what it's called for Windows hosts. A lot of people like to keep the hypervisor host clean, but for me, the trade-off of running everything directly on the host because of access to things like QuickSync is kind of worth it. So, you know, if you just want to keep things simple, just stick Proxmox on there. You may never use any of the Proxmox features, any of the virtualization stuff. But if you do decide further down the road that you want to do that kind of stuff, you don't have to then completely wipe your entire OS and start from scratch. Yeah, well said. Dimitri is struggling to ditch iOS. He says, I've been trying to switch from iOS device to a Pixel running Graphene OS. I've tried it three times, but I've been using iOS for so long that it's actually a huge pain to switch because of the apps. Any chance Chris could share how his transition has been going, and may he share how he set up a simple app such as Notes, Calendar, and Reminders? Well, I would just refer you to our sister show, Linux Unplugged. I think... Chris has done a rather excellent job over there of, of documenting his, what is it, giraffine? Is that what you losers call it over there? <laughs> My giraffine journey? Yes. If I recall, it started in November because uh, I, I was at AWS reInvent in Vegas back then. Still using it. Still got it. Yeah. Yeah, it, it has. I, you know what's funny? You're going to roll your eyes at this hard. But you know what? Can you guess what app I miss the most out of all of Apple's apps? Don't tell me it's the blue bubbles. No, it's notes. Really? Okay. I know. It's silly, but in the last couple of iOS releases, notes is really, really competent. I mean, you can share notes. You can do collaborative editing. You can take pictures and store them in the note. It supports markdown editing. It can capture text from inside the note. It has searching capabilities, and you can search that text. It has tags. It has folders. Uh, and you can export it all out to markdown using a third-party tool. It's really everything I need because I often just need like the other day I was working on the car and I just wanted to get the label off the battery I don't want that in my photo camera roll I don't want that backed up to the server I don't want that on my slideshow system I don't want that you know I don't I don't know what I just want it for 10 minutes or I want it in a year when I need to look up the battery again and I want it in a note I want it in a damn note and that's what Apple notes so I, I haven't really solved that but Quillipad gets pretty close Q-U-I-L-I-Pad. It, it syncs with Nextcloud Notes, and it, it gets me really, really close. I like that. And then DAVX5, you got to have that to sync with Nextcloud. You basically end up using Nextcloud to do a lot of the iCloud stuff, and that's how you that's how you solve it. What's a guy got to do to get you drinking that Obsidian sauce, huh? Oh, I got it right here. I got it right here. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I'm using Obsidian, but Obsidian isn't great for image-based stuff. You know, yeah, that's true. That's true. So I use it for like my actual like oil change notes and things like that. I put in Obsidian, but 
You know what was great was the other, the other day, like I did a bunch of work on my car in the summer and I thought to myself, when did I last, because I've, I've got a track day coming up in October, thinking, when did I last change the oil? Which which event was it before or after? And I couldn't remember specifically how many track days the oil in the engine has. And I went and looked in my Obsidian and sure as sure as you know, a few hundred miles ago, and I changed it the day before. My, so I've done, it's done one day on track, this current oil change. And I'm like, oh, past Alex, I love you. Thank you so much. <laughs> the uh, the wife's the wife's sticker on her windshield that I put on there when we changed the oil fell off. I'm like, where's your sticker at? What sticker? Oh yeah, the oil change sticker. What are you talking about? The oil change sticker I put here. Where'd it go? I don't know. So opened up Obsidian. There's the date. There's the mileage. Okay, we're good. <laughs> now just to finish Dimitri's question, uh, if you did want to catch up more about Linux Unplugged and Chris's journey with ditching the big G in the sky, it started at LUP four eight six. Goodbye Google. Link in the show notes. Now, we got some boosts this week, and our baller boost was spam-proof at FEA.ST this week. He came in with 60,057 sats using Podverse, and he has a hot tip because we've been getting what do you guys use for personal finance management? He says GNU Cash. It's not great, but I've been self-hosting it for over 10 years now, and it does a pretty good job of not breaking with each new release. <laughs> That's nice. What is that? Is that an indictment of the current state of software or what? Yeah, really. The headline feature is it doesn't break. You know, there is also a real practical matter of going with something like GNU Cache. It's not super flashy, but it's been around for 226 years. It just is steady as it goes, and it's open source, and it's established at this point. So I, I got I to gotta give a plus one to the GNU Cache recommendation. Thanks, Banproof, and thanks for being our baller. Leaky Canoe came in with 50,000 sats using the index. Hey, gents, thanks for the great show. Uh, I'm just getting started with Home Assistant. What wisdom can you impart on a newcomer to into this deep rabbit hole? Also, what communication protocols do you choose when you build out? Z-Wave, Zigbee. Also, you could add Matter, Wi-Fi, Thread, Hues. Uh, <laughs> what wisdom can we impart on a newcomer? Hmm. Start small. It's very tempting to order 800 devices and try and do it all at once. True. You don't need to do that. But as we talked about earlier in the show, quite often you'll get halfway through doing a project, whether that's an ESP-based build or whether that is some kind of light switch swap out, and you'll figure out that, oh, actually the bulbs in the ceiling aren't compatible with this type of dimmer switch, and there's going to be roadblocks. So I would just take it slow, do maybe a room at a time or a certain type of, you know, do lighting all at once or something like that, or, or start off with climate or something really simple, low-hanging fruit where the stakes are pretty low. You know, I think I've talked about this in the past where, you know, if you're doing something like home security right off the bat and you're figuring out all the home assistant nuances, the stakes are high-ish in that if you screw up, could potentially leave your house unlocked overnight, which probably you don't want to do that. Whereas if the lights turn on at 2 a.m., okay, it's a bit annoying, but nobody's going to be, nobody's going to be actually hurt or otherwise yeah hopefully yeah i i wonder what is your thought on doing like a base ubuntu or centos or whatever dicks and and running home assistant core in a container versus going with the whole haas operating system supervisor setup as for a beginner the inbuilt app store is super powerful i don't use node red hardly at all anymore i used to use it a lot when i was uh, in the beginning which is so node red is a, is a more visual based way of, of writing automations i got into that several years ago before home assistant made their automation ui a lot better 
there's still a place for node red if you want to do some really complicated stuff because you can drop to javascript if if you're so inclined as part of that that uh, workflow but i really like the the vm appliance aspect of it i feel like if i want to move my proxmox host or i you know I want to do some maintenance on my main proxmox host i can just snapshot that vm and transfer that qcow file to a different box and bring it up no problem Whereas if it's on a physical piece of hardware and it goes pop, then if I'm not in the in the house, it's more tricky for me to recover from that situation. The other thing I would say is make sure you've got a proper backup. So I've been using for the last several years the Google Drive backup plugin. This takes a snapshot inside the environment of the VM of the entire Home Assistant configuration, including add-ons and all the rest of it and it backs it up to Google Drive. You can configure how many snapshots it keeps and it rotates rotates them out every seven days for you or whatever you want to do. Yep, also a plus one on that recommendation. You can also go in there and have it do like, hey, I'm about to go do an upgrade. So do a backup for me and immediately send that off to Google Drive. So that way, if anything goes wrong, I can bail out. Also, you asked about communication protocols, Z-Wave, Zigbee, et cetera. Yeah, you know, man, that is a hard question to answer. It kind of depends, bro. <laughs> like, it depends on your home. Because I have both Zigbee and Z-Wave, and there's things I like about both of them. Zigbee is an open standard. It is going to also probably, you'll you'll find cheaper devices, so you can save some money uh, because it doesn't require certification. And Zigbee is kind of being folded into matter, so it probably has a really long future. Z-Wave is a proprietary standard you have to be certified on, but that means that in order for devices to get certified, they have to pass a certain level of QA. And it's 900 megahertz versus 2.4 gigahertz for Zigbee. For me, 900 megahertz just works better, goes farther, does more, is more reliable. I tried to switch over to Zigbee and went back to Z-Wave because it's just 900 megahertz. I think at the end of the day, works better for me. I would try to put as few devices on Wi-Fi as possible. Absolutely fine to have Wi-Fi devices. I've got plenty of them. If you already own some, it's fine. But ultimately, I, I like to have everything on Z-Wave or Zigbee as, as much as I can, especially things that are sensors, switches, and that kind of stuff. And also, if you can, when you're getting smart plugs, buy ones that have energy monitoring built in from the beginning, because then you get all kinds of great data you can use later on. MCZP writes in, number one, I own one domain, and yeah. now I just feel inadequate. <laughs> you know, it was surprised me is... How many people boosted in just saying they own one domain? Yeah, yeah, Chris, you, you are not normal, my friend. Well, how many domains? I mean, you have a lot of domains, right? Uh, I bought a couple this week, actually. Yeah, uh, we actually tried to buy selfhosted.forum this week. Uh, but unfortunately, that domain is taken with, with a Lemmy instance uh, right now. And the admins aren't interested in selling it. So <laughs> I would love it if we could do selfhosted.forum, but alas. Yeah, that's why we just got to use, we just got to standardize on .lol. <laughs> yeah i had to put that in there because first of all mczip's a great booster and second of all one domain really dude somebody out there must have more than 10 or 15 right you got to admit it I, I i feel i feel like a domain lush i mean it, it might be it might be 80 domains i don't know i mean it's not that many it's a lot though it's it's I'm, enough that they were considered I'm, an asset of the business when i sold the business <laughs> I'm going by the American pie rules here. You take the number the girl says and times it by three and the number yeah. the boy says and divide it by three. <laughs> Lol Salvatore came in with 10,000 sats. First time booster, long time lover. Tail scale question for the wizards. Is there a way to have an 
SSH-only connection go over my tailnet. IT has my work machine locked down, and sometimes I want to connect to a guacamole server at home. You might be looking for something like corkscrew. This isn't a Tailscale-specific tip, although, of course, it will work over Tailscale. I don't know if your admins permit VPN traffic. Some firewalls are clever enough to detect that kind of stuff and block it at the firewall level outgoing. What I used to do when I worked for a bank, what's it called when, when the thing expires, like Lance Armstrong, like seven years or whatever? Where you admit to a crime long enough after that. Statue of limitations. Yeah, I think that applies here. I, I think I've not worked for that company for like six years, seven years I think it's, now. it's not statute, statute of limitations. That's what it is, statute. Statute of limitations. Okay. Well, when I worked for the bank in London, they had quite a restrictive firewall policy, which of course, being a bank, you would expect. And I was uh, getting into you know, Linux in a big way and SSHing around all over the place back then. So I started running my SSH servers on port 443. Clever boy. Because a lot of encrypted traffic goes over 443, so it becomes just another encrypted stream. And so if you use, there's a, a command uh, which you can put in your SSH config file to tunnel all of your SSH traffic out over this tool called Corkscrew, and then uh, it will go out over port 443 and look like just normal HTTPS traffic. Uh, and that gets around quite a lot of sneaky firewalls if you ever need that trick. Yeah, there's so many fun ways to play with SSH. Let us know how it goes, Lol Saboteur. I think you're going to have uh, some fun. VT52 and Faraday Fedora boosted into, say, Pork Bun. They like Pork Bun as a DNS registrar. They say they're headquartered in Portland, Oregon. So for Chris, it's almost like buying a domain from the next door neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> and you have to have it checked for damp every few years as well. Big Portland, right? Right. Well, and potentially vandalism these days, but oh, I kid. I kid. There's a Seattle-Portland rivalry and Seattle's better. Bob B comes in with 6,000 sats. My umbo node broke. So Oak is down. That's how he sends his automatic boost. So I'm sending it by hand. Containers are still a bit of a challenge for me to troubleshoot. I'm not really sure where to go next with self-hosting and Bitcoin and Lightning. Do I do something like Umbral, which is one of those you install it and then it has an app store and you install all the apps from a container? Or is there maybe another less black boxy way I should go? If you're going to, if you want to get started with containers, I mean, I really, I, this, I feel like this is a cliche of mine, Bob. But I feel like the best way to do it would be a minimal Linux install or even like an Ubuntu desktop or some sort of desktop install and play around with it on the command line and start there, run containers on the command line, play around with Docker Compose, because that's what like these things are doing, like Start9 and Umbral. And there's a bunch of others. I was looking at a couple others this week. They're giving you really nice front ends. They're doing the app discovery, which is nice. But when you click install, they're just kind of pulling down a Docker compose file and then pulling down containers and firing them up. And when you understand how that works, it makes it pretty easy to troubleshoot any of these, or at least you can go in and look at how they run and be like, oh, I'm not comfortable with this. This is a mess. And you can bail. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've got a bunch of tips over on perfectmediaserver.com, which, by the way, I should say, in the last episode, I put a call out to the audience to say, hey, send me some money, please, to support the website. And boy, did you guys respond. I had nearly $400 in donations come in in the last two oh, weeks. Oh, that's awesome. Which was amazing. It's more more donations than I've ever had for any of any of my projects previously. Well, that should cover some of the run costs of the server for a while. Yeah, it's about 15 months. It's great. Of, run, of runway, which is the first time perfectmediaserver.com has ever not just been out of my own pocket. So thank you so much to anybody that uh, donated. And I really, really appreciate it. So on perfectmediaserver.com, there is a containers section where I sort of walk through Docker and Docker Compose and all that kind of stuff. You could also have a look in my GitHub repo, which I'll put a link to in the show notes, for all the various containers that I run. 
uh, personally. And I run that through an Ansible configurator to spit out the Docker Compose file. That may or may not be too advanced for you, in which case there are tons of Docker Compose examples for those similar apps on the internet. Or just join our Discord and ask for some help and we'd be happy to help. Our last boost this week that makes it in before we have to run is from Gene Bean, 19,998 sats. And uh, he sent me some pictures of a traditional American rotary phone where you put your finger in the thing and you it around. And he has done an integration with his VoIP system and he can pick it up and do voice commands to Home Assistant on an old classic rotary phone. He sent me all the pictures in Matrix and it is so neat. And he, he pointed us to the VoIP integration for Home Assistant, which is how he's kind of making all of this happen. And he has a little bridge adapter with a PoE adapter. So the whole thing's powered and it all just, it's just so great. I remember I was probably a teenager at, the, at this point, but my uh, stepmom brought home a rotary phone from, uh, she used to work in the doctor's office. And I think the, they were having a clean out or something and she brought home this rotary phone and, you know, I was a, a a bit of a gadget head, even at age 14 or whatever it was. And I remember she put this thing down on the kitchen table and said to me, how would you, how would you use this? How would you dial a number on this phone? And I look at it and I'm, I'm poking the, the buttons thinking, ah, oh, I have no idea. And I, I sort of, I got the idea that the, the dial on the front sort of moved. And then I was like, wait, I have to drag it all the way around and then wait for it to go all the way back and then do the next number the same way. Like, I want to dial 999. That's going to take me a while. Yeah. <laughs> I loved them, though. Just playing with it. I just liked, I liked playing around with it. Oh, they had such a wonderful, like, Land Rover-esque mechanical engineering, like, clunk to them, didn't they? Yes. They were they were very clunky technology. Um, also, I'm going to put a link in the show notes. Gene Bean sent along a link for home cam for home kit. And if your cameras are home kit compatible... It gives you like a dashboard to bring in all your camera feeds into a single pane. It looks really cool. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. That's all the boost for this week because uh, of time. But thank you, everybody who boosted. And we, we keep all of them in the boost barn and our dock and we share them with the whole team. So everybody sees all of them. We had 19 boosters and we pulled in 230,909 sats. Thank you, everybody who did boost in. We read all of them. And if you'd like to boost the show. You can get a new podcast app, podcastapps.com. Let's see, Podfriend is on there, Fountain, Castomatic, Podcast Index is uh, on there, Podverse. Lots of different apps out there, podcastapps.com. Or keep your app, getalby.com, top it off, and then go to the Podcast Index and boost in, and we'll read your message on a future show, and you're supporting us directly. And, of course, thank you to our members, our SREs that are making the show possible and supporting the ongoing production. You get an ad-free feed with bonus content, a post-show, that's at selfhoster.show slash SRE. And don't forget about our upcoming meetups. Linux Fest Northwest is, of course, happening any day now. And there'll be a bunch of last minute shenanigans, I'm sure. Uh, we're thinking about doing some kind of a live recording on October the 20th. We're not quite sure of the details or whether we'll move it to the Saturday whilst we're at the fest. Who knows? Who knows? It's all up in the air. We could do a live show at the fest, maybe. That, that's not a bad idea, Alex. Yeah, I don't know. We should talk we'll, more about that. We'll see. I mean, I don't know about you, but I kind of like having an editor. Yeah, that's true. Well, you can still edit. It's just going to be, yikes. Not, uh, not, it won't be his fault, but it'll be noisy. 
just be a little noisy. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, if you want to find out more about that, meetup.com slash Broadcasting, as well as linuxfestnorthwest.org. Uh, you can go to selfhosted.show for all different places to get in touch with us. And I have a links site at alex.ktz.me. And you can find me in the Matrix. I'm at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash matrix at Chris LAS. We got a self-hosted room or two over there. We got a whole bunch of chat rooms. It's really kind of a poppin' place. Come join us on the Federation. Thanks for listening. That was self-hosted.show slash 105.